Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Theology and Raw. I have on the show today Dr. Scott Ray. Scott is an ethics professor at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology because he's been teaching ethics at a graduate or postgraduate level for more than 25 years. He is a humble dude. He is a gracious dude. And he has literally written the textbook on Christian ethics. And it's one of the most widely used textbooks on Christian ethics. And uh, he's just a super sharp dude. And I'm so excited about this because I've been really concerned over the last few years as I I hear um, Christians think through different moral decisions. How do we determine what is right and wrong? Is euthanasia okay? Is same-sex marriage okay? Is warfare okay? Is violence okay? Uh, What about abortion and so on and so forth? We all have opinions about these things, but we often don't even really reflect on the ethical methodology we use to arrive at making moral conclusions. This is why I love people like Scott Ray. Scott's going to help us organize our thinking to expose our consistencies and inconsistencies when we think through some of the tough, most pressing moral decisions that we make either within our life or even on a day-to-day level. So Scott is, uh, we, well, we just had a wonderful conversation about all kinds of things related to ethics, and I'm super stoked about this conversation. Hey, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com. That's Patreon. You can probably spell it. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And also, you get lots of perks in return, like monthly Patreon-only podcasts, uh, blogs, uh, community conversations on the Patreon webpage that I devote some time to, and I don't devote much time to other social media outlets to talk to everybody who's out there, but I do try to prioritize my Patreon conversations. Also, March 10th, I will be in San Francisco with a dialogue about sexuality with Justin Lee, and that event is free for all of my Patreon supporters. So if you want to support the show, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw and take advantage to the various perks that being a Patreon supporter uh, gives you. And apart from all the perks, you just get the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting theology in the raw. Okay, I'll stop. I'm done. Let's talk to Scott Ray. He's an awesome dude. He's a smart dude. And please enjoy this conversation. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with my friend, Dr. Scott Ray. Uh, As I said in the intro, uh, Scott is an uh, ethics professor at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology. Uh, Thanks so much for being on the show, Scott. Sure. Preston, happy to be with you and uh, always happy to talk about ethics. Well, how long have you been doing ethics? I mean, or teaching ethics? Has it been like 20 years or so? Uh, It's more like 20, 25 to 30, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was, I think what's, what I found is that, uh, there's an occupational hazard in this because a lot of the things that I've been working on have followed me home over the years. God's got kind of an interesting, interesting sense of humor on this because particularly my area, my main area in bioethics, uh, my my wife and I wrestled with infertility Mm -hmm. uh, about the same time I started studying this seriously. Wow. Uh, And then 
you know, with uh, assisted suicide being a public debate, we we started walking parents through terminal illnesses. Oh wow! Um, and then when the Human Genome Project came online a few years ago, my wife had a major history of breast cancer in her family, and one of the early genetic tests to come out of that was the test for the genetic glitch that gave women an 85 to 90 percent likelihood of getting breast cancer. So I I figure maybe I think I'm going to take up the prosperity gospel next and see if that'll follow (laughs) me home. Man, that is that is uh, that's uncanny. That's crazy, man. Uh, Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these things that that I have been writing about and speaking about have also been, you know, they've been dinner table conversations and bedside discussions with my dad and when he was terminally ill and lots of stuff that uh, is really, if it fits the title of your program, it's, it's, it's Hmm. very much theology in the raw. So you're not doing ethics from just a detached ivory tower. You, you are, I mean, in in the most literal way, I mean, living this stuff out. That's sometimes um, I wish I were detached in the ivory tower because it's, (laughs) it's it's gut wrenching, emotional decisions. And, you know, anytime somebody says, well, the stuff you've written has been really helpful to me. That's a mixed blessing because I, you know, I so said, I'm glad it's been helpful, but I'm really sorry that you're in a situation where it can actually be helpful to you. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I do recall now the, the, the bio, bioethics in particular is, is your primary area. Is that, was that like a topic of your dissertation or just something? I did. You I wrote, I, uh, my dissertation was on the ethics of surrogate motherhood. Oh, uh, wow. And this was back, this was, you know, 25, 30 years ago when, surrogacy was just getting started and you know it was the stuff of tv miniseries and all this crazy stuff was going yeah. on wow. um, and the courts were just deciding what to do with all this so it's really you know it's really prime time to get into that discussion um mm-hmm. it's not I, I wouldn't say it's receded but it's not quite the hot ethical topic that it was when it first you know came it came out what do you think uh what do you, what are the number one, two, or three hot ethical topics that you see just keep coming up? Well, I, I think probably number one would be issues related to sex, sexuality, mm-hmm. uh, marriage, sexuality, transgender type things. Mm-hmm. Second, I would say probably not far behind are things related to uh, immigration, uh, refugees, um, asylum seekers, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Third, I would say, would be um, just the, the way we think about morality in general, I think has changed significantly in the last 20 years or so. Um, how how so? It, can, you, can you, yeah, can you uh, yeah. unpack that a bit? I would love to hear. Well, yeah. for, for one, I think there's, there's, there's a new absolutism that has arisen, I think, probably in the last, maybe in, we've, we've kind of come to see this maybe in the last 10 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, where, especially on college campuses, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's quite accurate to say that relativism is the cultural, you know, ethical system of the day. I think there's a, there's a, there's a new sense of absolutism, really rigid absolutism, uh, that's taken hold on lots of state university campuses and culture in general. Because um, try, you know, try saying a politically incorrect thing yeah. on most state university college campuses, and you will generally not be met with with tolerance and understanding and sensitivity. 
uh, it is a, you know, it's at times almost a brutal, rigid absolutism that has taken hold. Uh, you know, if you, if you cross the line on, on certain political, very politically incorrect issues. Yeah. Um, so that, that I think is something new that we haven't, we haven't seen all that much of uh, until the last 10 years or so. Well, were you, are you uh, familiar with what happened at Evergreen University with uh, yes. Brett Weinstein? And, yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a perfect example of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's being, you know, that's being multiplied on state universities all over the country, which yeah. is why people like Jonathan Haidt and yeah. Jordan Peterson are so popular. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, yeah. Because they're, you know, I, I, at least I think they're being honest enough to say that things like free speech and free inquiry are being stifled. Yeah. Uh, in the name of a new, uh, a new orthodoxy mm-hmm. um, that I think is actually much more rigid and unbending yeah. than any kind of religious morality we've seen in the last hundred years. Oh, I totally agree. I, so Jonathan Haidt's probably my favorite author right now. Did you read his recent book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind? Oh, he's terrific. Oh, it's it? so good. I mean, it's, scary, actually, it's he, scary, but it's really good. He actually came to, to Biola. No and way. Spoke, and spoke on that subject oh, wow. uh, before the book came out. Uh, and he wow. was, you know, he just hit a home run. Oh, he's so camping. good. So, you know. so I want to talk about the book in a second, but you got me so intrigued right now because this is, um, I would say in the last year has been something, I don't talk about a lot on the podcast, but it's been something I've been paying really close attention to and, and really kind of disturbed by it. Have you seen i mean you're talking primarily about state universities public you know colleges and whatever have you seen it on your own campus though this a similar kind of vibe of uh the sort of you know intolerance of or the tall what is it the yeah the intolerance of tolerance so to speak or uh i think maybe just a bit um and i and i so i i understand kind of where where it comes from mm-hmm. <clears throat> because People, I think, you know, generally, and this goes back to the way we think about morality in ge- <coughs> excuse me, in general, because if we, if we believe that morality is nothing more than matters of opinion, mm-hmm. then there's no way to explain why we are so passionate <coughs> about moral matters. We, the reality is, Preston, we treat moral discussions completely differently than we do most anything else. Hmm. Uh, we, we, treat, we treat moral matters as though they are objectively true. Um, and, they're, and they are not strictly matters of opinion. I mean, I got a matter of opinion about my favorite flavor of ice cream. But I rarely talk passionately about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have my I have my subjective opinion on who I think is going to win the Super Bowl, <laughs> but I rarely talk very passionately about that. Now, maybe maybe some do so about sports that that may have other things to, that we probably ought to talk about. <laughs> uh, but we generally treat morality matters as though they are matters of truth and knowledge. Ask someone if they think that racial discrimination is morally wrong. And I think they would say, most people I think would say that if, that if you disagree with me about racial discrimination being morally wrong, it's not just that you have a different perspective on it or view it through a different set of lenses. We would say that you're just flat out wrong about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, 
I think we just, we tend to treat these moral matters differently, uh, which suggests to me that there's something more, more intrinsic and fundamental about morality that's sort of hardwired into the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we generally don't shame somebody for thinking that, uh, that Coke tastes better than Pepsi or that chocolate's a better flavor of ice cream than vanilla, or that, uh, you know, the Greek islands is a more beautiful vacation spot than Hawaii. Uh, but if somebody has a, if somebody thinks that, uh, you know, racial discrimination is morally acceptable, I th- we, we correctly, I think, bring something akin to what in the past we would call shame or guilt or remorse, you know, or things like that. We don't, we don't do that for things that we just have different subjective opinions about. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, well, I can't keep, I can't stop thinking about the, the, how this relates to the whole college campus thing. What do you, what do you think has happened? Where, where did this come from that college campuses have become so, um, so intolerant of, any sort of uh, view or idea that challenges a, a, a particular, and I would say far left kind of narrative. I mean, it's not, you know, you mentioned like, you know, try saying something politically incorrect on campus and see how that goes. And that's absolutely true. And I would even push it farther and say, try saying something just remotely conservative or, or something that uh, would challenge the sort of, uh, you know, really specific uh, ideology that would be uh, yeah. more or less, you know, far, not liberal, liberals, you know, more illiberal or, or even on, you know, on the far, uh, far left way of thinking. Uh, I've, often, I've often, I've often wanted to, to ask on state university campuses, if you're so committed to diversity, you know, mm-hmm. why are you committed to the diversity of everything except diversity of thought? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, so I say, if you're really committed to diversity of thought on state university campuses, then show me, the 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 female faculty who are pro-life yeah yeah and i guarantee you you won't find one yeah uh you know show me the african-american faculty member who thinks that uh you know affirmative action back in the you know 80s and 90s was a bad idea yeah uh you, you know you'll, you'll likely get crucified for that yeah. um and, and i tell i tell my seminary students uh, when we have our discussions about sexuality, if we had this discussion on any state university oh, campus, we'd be yeah. thrown off <laughs> um, and we'd be, we'd be villainized. Right. Um, so I think where, where this came from in, in my judgment is a, um, I think what started out as something with good intentions, but has taken on a worldview that is, dis- I think, decidedly hostile to a Christian worldview. I think it started out with good intentions to, to give a voice to groups and individuals who had been marginalized in the past. Mm-hmm. But where it's taken on its absolutism is it's adopted what I would suggest is more a, what I would call a neo-Marxist yeah. view of the world that sees the world almost exclusively through the lenses of oppressor and oppressed. Right. Like either you're one or the other, either you have power. And if you have power, that means you stepped on somebody else to get that power. Or, and and if you have power, then you are an oppressor. If you're not an oppressor, you are oppressed, right? You divide the world in terms of good and evil, powerful, non-powerful, which ends up being 
white straight males <laughs> are the oppressor, the the perpetrator, the ones with the power, and everybody else is the victim, which is a really not not only skewed view of reality, it was just not real, but it's incredibly dehumanizing and, and really dangerous, right? I mean, we've seen where Marx marked this Marxist ideology can and has led to, and it leads to the death of millions of people, right? Yeah, the, the uh, that's why I'm not I'm not enthused about neo Marxism because I've seen you know you you saw in the 20th century exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, um, and I think this what again what starts out as good intentions I think mm-hmm. and I think the uh, the social justice movement I think is in danger of adopting a neo Marxist framework perhaps inadvertently, um, and that's I think that's the worldview that I think is, is, is without a doubt hostile to a distinctly Christian view of the world. Could you unpack what you mean by social justice? Because when I hear that, I, I have kind of two different, I guess, debates in my mind. One would be more of a political kind of the SJW, social justice warrior, which is a neo-Marxist kind of ideology. But then also on the far other end of the spectrum, you have debates within conservative evangelicalism on whether social justice is part of the mission of the church, part of the gospel, or whatever. Um, and those are kind of I, I, what I uh, kind of two very different ideas of what social justice is. What, what do you? What no, you, you yeah. You're right. They're they're completely different. I think we, we need to be clear first. And you know, with you being a New Testament guy, um, you know, I'm going to start with the Old Testament. So hang in there with me. Uh, <laughs> but it's reinforced in the New Testament. I do think that the Bible is incredibly clear about the, the, the responsibility of the people of God to those who are poor, needy, um, marginalized, mm-hmm. um, and who are, who are just who are on the who are outside the, the cultural sort of mainstream um, that's not quite the term I'm looking for, but are, are they on the margins of society? homeless, um, the poor, uh, those that have been discriminated against, lots of minority groups fit into this category. And the, the Bible is very clear that God has a special place in his heart for those who have been you know, relegated to the margins. Uh, the prophets, I think, are very eloquent on this. And I actually think this is a big part of what, G- what Jesus meant uh, when he said, you know, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Testament, I think, is just crystal clear about this. And I think, uh, you know, if you actually cut out all those passages in the Scripture that related to the poor and the marginalized, you'd have you'd have an incomplete Scripture. Uh-huh. Uh, that so I think there's I, I don't see any place for this this what I would call old school Pietism that says all you do is preach the gospel. Um, the, you know, the culture's going to hell in a handbasket, and so. Any attempt to uh, to do any kind of social mission uh, that's not preaching the gospel is sort of equivalent to rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm, yeah. uh, and I think the response to that is that you know throughout the Scripture, where the kingdom is is described, it has both an individual and a social component to it. The kingdom has a structural component to it. That uh, you know, every, every when the kingdom comes in its fullness, every knee will bow at the name of Christ. But we will also have 
a society that functions free from sin and corruption. And I admit, I'm, I still have difficulty kind of getting my arms around exactly what that looks like. Um, but I think our, our attempts to, to minister and serve among the, the poorest of the poor uh, is, is, I would say, a kingdom foretaste of what, uh, what we'll see when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Okay? So, That's good. so the sort of what I would call almost a, an, old, an old school pietistic view um, that says all we do is preach the gospel um, and culture sort of takes care of itself. I don't think the Bible supports that. Um, and so I think the Bible supports what I would call a, 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 a high role for justice. I, I don't really care if you call it social justice or not. The term, I think, has some baggage attached yeah. to it um, that in, in, in lots of places has this neo-Marxist framework in it um, that, I, that I find problematic. Um, but, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, whether we call it social justice or not, it's not, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what, what we mean by that is ensuring that we uh, reach the, the, you know, those that have been relegated to the margins and reflect the heart of God for them. Mm. Now, whether it's part of the gospel or not, I think is a, <clears throat> I would call that's a distinction without a meaningful difference. Mm. Because, you know, whether it's part of the gospel message or not, it seems really clear that uh, developing a heart for the poor and the marginalized is a, a pretty important element of faithfully following Christ. So whether, whether you we want to say it's part of the gospel, I'm inclined to say it's probably not. I'm inclined to say the gospel is what Paul delivered uh, the, the message of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and our response to that, that he delivered in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but, you know, I don't think that gets anybody off the hook uh, because a, a, I would say a constituent part of faithfully following Jesus is developing this tender heart and living out that heart for the poor and the marginalized. Mm, that's good. That's good. I, I think everything you articulated there, I think would be really helpful, uh, especially for conservative evangelical Christianity that, that seems really nervous about um, making social, so, quote, quote, social justice a bigger part of the mission of the church. I think <clears throat> their, their nervousness is that they are understanding social justice through the lens of this kind of neo-Marxist uh, political thing going on rather than seeing, and, and maybe it's a terminological thing. Maybe we need to come up with a different term. Maybe when people hear social justice, it just triggers them to think of, you know, stuff going on in culture. But um, yeah. yeah I, mean, I, do, I do know folks who are, you know, who are basically allergic to that term. Yeah. Which yeah, I think is yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Cause because... I've, I've said some things on, on Twitter and other outlets where I, I, being kind of ignorant of how other people are understanding social justice where I would have like you a very high view of social justice, but I'm not at all. I'm not really talking about the political conversation. I'm just talking about right. the, the biblical. I'm using the term to capture what is indisputably a main thread of the story of scripture. Yeah. And I think here, I think we have to look at this historically a bit too. And, and I, those fear, the fears of the idea of social justice, I think, come from our experience with the social gospel a hundred yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, where, 
you know, the social mission of the church became everything. Right. And I think the reason for that is because at the same time that the social gospel was uh, really making headway, uh, the, 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 uh, the sort of the fundamentals of Christian faith were being undercut mm-hmm. by yeah. higher critical methods and higher critical scholarship. And so the, the, the person of Jesus was essentially being sort of spiritually emasculated. Yeah. And the, the Bible was being, you know, no, I mean, trust in the Bible was at an all time low right. at that point. So this, this, the social gospel was all that people had. And so of course the gospel message got, obscured and marginalized itself in the process. Right. Yeah, that's good. Hey, Scott, I want to circle back around. Let's go back to your book. So the book, we've referred to your book a few times. You haven't actually said the name. It's called Moral Choices. Um, oh, I have it here on my desk. An uh, Introduction to Ethics. And it's in the fourth edition. Now, as I said, off off, off the air uh, before mm-hmm. we started, um, this first came out. Was it uh, 94, 96, something like that? 94. 94, and it was about a, a fourth of the length, I think, of what it is now. <laughs> it's now the fourth edition, and it is a massive, uh, I mean, it's a tech, it's basically, a, I mean, it's a, it's a, well, textbook almost sounds demeaning because people think of textbooks being boring and dry and overpriced. I mean, it is a textbook on ethics, but it is so relevant and engaging and clear and easy to read. I just, I'm, I, I when I, when you send me the copy, I'm like, man, this is, this is a, a serious work, and I'm so thankful for how many <laughs> years of you know thinking and study have gone into it. Um, I, I want to. Uh, I don't. I sort of. I react a bit to people calling it a textbook because I'd like it to yeah. be used for something more than a doorstop. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah, no, totally. And what I love about it is you spend, I mean, several chapters talking about you know uh, kind of a history of ethics and different ethical frameworks, but then you go in. A bulk of the book is talking about immigration and warfare and sexuality and gender and bioethics and all these things you actually go you the bulk of the book right is i mean you're you're yeah. you're tackling head on uh the the hot button issues of the day and 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 using the framework that you discussed to think through it um let's i want to start by can you give us a, just a brief overview of some of the main Christian ethical systems. I'm talking about, say, deontological ethics or virtue ethics or natural law, or maybe we could even include something like, um, you know, uh, oh gosh, uh, situation ethics or utilitarian ethics, which aren't particularly Christian per se, but are really uh, assumed, kind of the assumed ethical perspective of a lot of Christians. So yeah, give, give us a quick lay of the land. What are the different options for Christians to think ethically. Well, yeah, I think there's I think there's probably three different ways of thinking about morality. That uh, Christian ethics is is a would be a blend of all three of these. One is um, I think it is it it's prim- primarily a blend of principles and virtues. Okay. Uh, so the technical term for those would be uh, deontological systems, which um, for a deontological system, things are intrinsically right or wrong. Uh, they don't depend on the outcome or the circumstances. Um, and that's, and, and the reason ultimately is because it goes for a deontological system, it goes back to the principle of the thing. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh, everything's a matter of principle. Now by, I think, 
by complement, uh, a virtue ethic, is it designed to, uh, I think, remedy some of the some of the shortcomings or or how deontological ethics, I guess, was incomplete, mm-hmm. because the way principle based ethics came to be understood as was as only being applicable to somebody's actions. Hmm. Uh, it was, I mean, all of these are called action-based ethical systems. Well, the virtue person comes along and says, well, there's a lot more to the moral life than that uh, because we have, what really matters is people's character uh, and what they do when nobody's looking and when they're not acting. Um, so there's more, there's more to moral assessment than just the action. Now, from a Christian worldview, both of those are important because ultimately the, 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 the ultimate source for morality is God's character. And the principle, yeah. the moral principles and values that, are, that come out of Scripture are all, uh, all based on a prior commitment to God's character. The reason we have the principles and values that we do is because God's the kind of God that he is. Hmm. You know, we may say, well, you know, love makes, the, love makes the world go round. And that's true. But the reason we're called to love our neighbor is because God is fundamentally that kind of God. Hmm. Reason we're, reason we're mandated to be forgiving is not because forgiveness fundamentally heals fractured relationships, though that's true. Fundamentally, it's because God is, is at his core, in his character, a forgiving God. So we have, we have, the virtues or, or God's character is the ultimate source for morality from which our principles and, and, and moral values, you know, fall out of those. Now the, the natural law tradition is more how those things get communicated and how those are revealed to the average person. Uh, Because the natural law tradition essentially says that, that, that God reveals moral values, not only in his word, but also in his world. And that God has Im- embedded, or I, I like the term, that's sort of a play on words that I think the natural law folks use, that God has engraved his moral values and principles into his world, analogous to how he engraved the Ten Commandments on stone. Uh, and they... You know, if you look, uh, take Proverbs, many of the Proverbs, for example, mm-hmm. are, are, I think, are great examples of this. Uh, and what's, what I think is so remarkable about those is that most of the biblical Proverbs are not original yeah. when, when they were written down. Uh, most of the biblical Proverbs have precedent in the ancient Near Eastern world that goes, some goes back as much as a thousand years prior to when Solomon and others wrote, actually wrote those down, which suggests that God was already in the business of revealing his wisdom hmm. throughout his creation and giving through common grace and general revelation, giving human beings the tools to unearth what God has embedded in the created order. Uh, now, I think obviously, uh, scripture, I think, is primary because it's clearer, uh, and Scripture also gives us the, the saving knowledge of God, which natural law does not. Natural law is sufficient to condemn, but not to save. Right. Um, so I, that's, I, I would see those, 
that's how I'd see those traditions, the, the deontological, the virtue, and the natural law tradition coming together. I think yeah. there's a place for thinking about the consequences or utilitarian ways of thinking, even though it was not designed, it was actually designed as a departure from Christian ethics, not as a complement. But the biblical Proverbs, for example, the Proverbs, say, the sentence Proverbs that start in about chapter 10 and go through, you know, chapter 24, 25, are all basically illustrations of the fact that actions have consequences. Yeah. And but so... That, real quick, so... Um, yeah. But with utilitarian, I mean, if I understand it correctly, it's one thing to say that this good behavior will lead to good consequences, but it's another thing to say this behavior is good because of the consequences that it leads to. Is, is that a, is that, a, am I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Is that? Well, that's a good distinction. Um, that the, the, the consequences don't make things right. Right. Like they do for a utilitarian. And, you know, and, and if you think about it, in a world where God has embedded his moral wisdom into his created order, the fact that doing the right thing would have good consequences, for the most part, is the way it ought to be. Right. No, nobody should be surprised by that. I would say the consideration of, of utility or consequences is more the caboose yeah. on the train uh, but for the utilitarian, it's the engine that drives the whole thing. Right. In a Christian worldview, I don't think we can say that it's the engine that drives the whole thing, but we would expect that it be part of the train. So would you say that most Christian ethicists would, would agree with you on, on just the last couple of minutes of what you said about utilitarian ethics? And I've got a follow-up question. There's a reason why I'm asking that. Uh, so the ones that I'm familiar with, I, I think would. Uh, I don't, I don't know of anybody off the top of my head, who's you know a serious mm -hmm. scholar in Christian ethics, who would say that utilitarianism as a standalone ethical theory is sufficient and fully reflects biblical teaching. So okay, so I'm gonna follow that up with this with a few questions related to sexuality. <laughs> I'm luring you in, and I know you and I are on the same page on on so many levels on on this conversation. But one argument that I I, 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 I feel the I feel the hook going in my cheek. <laughs> well, one argument that I've been I mean wrestling with it's it's not it's it's a powerful argument because I think it hits people, it touches their hearts, but I think. Ethically and logically, it's just pretty bankrupt, but yet it's so incredibly popular. It might be the most popular argument for affirming same-sex relationships or same-sex marriage in the church. And it's what I call the, the harm argument. And you're probably familiar with it. It goes something like this, that you know, because the uh, traditional or historically Christian sexual ethic is harmful toward uh, gay people, towards LGBTQ people, Therefore, it can't be good. Now, um, I have uh, no doubt. In fact, part of my life commitment is reducing and addressing and confronting the harm that Christians have done and do do and are doing toward LGBT people. So no, no doubt in my mind that some Christians and in the past, probably many Christians have harmed uh, gay people. Um, I have no doubt also that uh, those same Christians that may have harmed gay people um, 
also hold to a traditional sexual ethic. Okay, so those two points I totally agree with. But does that mean, I guess the, the, the crux of the argument is, is it the traditional Christian view that marriage is between a man and woman? Is it that particular view that's causing the harm? It's one thing to show correlation. It's quite another to, to try to prove causation. Um, but even if all of that was true, I mean, it's, first of all, it's pretty subjective. I think it's hard to, how would you actually prove that it's actually the traditional view of marriage that is forcing or causing Christians to harm gay people. But even if even if we agree with all of that, that still does feel like a utilitarian ethic. You're determining the good of something based on the results of the opposite view. So would would you, based on everything I said, if I'm if I'm representing the argument correctly, um, wouldn't that be a utilitarian uh, an argument that is based on a utilitarian way of thinking, which isn't a particularly Christian way of doing ethics? I think it's, yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that that argument smuggles in a utilitarian view of morality um, because there, there are other things to be considered. For one, I mean, I think you do have to, if you're going to, if you're going to make a utilitarian argument, correlation is not good enough. Right. You, you have to show causation for that. And, and um, I think you could, you could probably actually Turn that or turn the utilitarian argument on its head, um, and say you know lots lots of people have actually been harmed by uh, accepting this affirming view of sexuality. Um, I think yeah. I think the the harm that has come in general to people as a result of the the overall sexual revolution from the sixties uh, is is impossible to ignore. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, that goes a lot wider than the than the same sex discussion. Yeah. Know, that has to do with, you know, the divorce culture, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the contraception revolution, uh, you know, and the, the same sex discussion. So um, but I think the, the question I think, Preston, you're getting at is why why should we view why should the 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 argument from the outcome automatically be the trump card right um and i think there's i think we're probably you're right i think to distinguish between the way the argument has been made the style of it and the argument itself um and i think that you know and i think that you know we've got we've got to own uh you know our part in this in the past you know, the church behaved abominably yeah. in the past, which I think explains a lot of the ferocity of the LGBT movement in the aftermath of the Obergefell decision. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, it's payback, yeah. uh, and understandably so. Right. Um, but I think, you know, we, we need to be careful, I think, that we don't, you know, smuggle in a system um, that we're asking to do all of the work and give that trump card status. Yeah. So I think the problem with utilitarian modes of reasoning, you know, as this all comprehensive system of morality is who's to say what constitutes a harm. Right. I mean, I, I mean, you're, you're begging the question on that. And I, and I would say that for a utilitarian system to actually work, there's a prior commitment to certain principles 
that tell you that certain things are harmful. Yeah. I mean, who's, who's to tell the, the Muslim family who ritually circumcises their daughter that she's been harmed? Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who, you know, who's, who, I mean, on what, on what basis are these things harms and benefits? And they, you, you usually can't say that without some sort of prior commitment to principles or virtues. Well, it seems to kind of collapse, you know, things like pain or suffering or hardship and harm all under a large umbrella of quote unquote harm. And yeah, and then you can kind of, but, but I wonder if also what's feeding that is the, the modern just passion to pursue pleasure and comfort and, you know, where, especially in American or Western society, especially in a wealthy elite society, any form of kind of suffering or hardship is viewed as not just bad, but in kind of intrinsically evil almost. No, it's viewed uh, as immoral. Immoral, and yeah. That, that's, that's the old school utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, hmm. who calculated utility in terms specifically of pain and pleasure. Really? And that's what's come back today. Um, although he viewed it, he viewed it a little bit differently. He, he viewed it through the lenses of basically a social consensus at that time about what constituted legitimate pains and pleasures, okay. uh, which we've lost all of that today. Today, what it's become translated as, I would say is more of an old school hedonism huh. that, uh, the satisfaction of my desires makes something morally right and therefore worth pursuing. Hmm. But I yeah. suspect it's probably a good thing our good thing our wives aren't listening to this at the moment. But if you know, if I did everything according to my desires, I don't know about you, but I would certainly be polygamous. <laughs> um, and it seems to me most of Christian ethics. Yeah is designed to put limits and boundaries on our desires, yeah. not to give full fruition to them. Well, that, mean, also, that also plays into another popular argument, the argument from orientation, that if somebody has a quote-unquote sexual orientation in a particular way, um, that that therefore justifies the behavior that might spring from that orientation. Now, I think sometimes, well, first of all, I think that we have – we don't have we don't understand what we even mean when we say sexual orientation. <laughs> I think that whole concept is way more complicated than people make it out to be. But that's I mean, a sexual orientation is just a modern way of talking about a sexual desire. Now we can say, is it innate, is it biological, is it changeable, whatever. But really at the end of the day, it's basing, it's justifying a behavior based on the desire from which that behavior springs. But that that's Gosh, that's even more distant from a Christian way of thinking than even a like oh, yeah. utilitarian. That's com yeah, it's completely foreign. Yeah. To Christian. I mean, I look at the teaching of Jesus where it talks about, you know, deny yourself, take up mm -hmm. your cross and follow me. And it seems to me that on the, you know, on the list of priorities that, that are important to Jesus, the satisfaction of my desires is pretty, <laughs> pretty far down the list. Right. Yeah. You know, not that all my desires are problematic, but. You know, to, I think yeah. to assume that just because you have a desire, I mean, this is sort of the, you know, we're, we're back to, you know, the old moral philosophy of David Hume again. And Hume uh, had been, you know, completely discredited uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Yet he's 
you know, he's finding quite a resurrection at the popular level. I don't, I don't think David Hume ever envisioned himself being this popular. Um, so here, here's my, I mean, I'm just old school enough. I, mean, I just turned 43 a couple of days ago. So I have one, I, I, I kind of have one foot in the millennial generation and I've been teaching college like you have for years. And so I, I understand the way people think who are, you know, between 40 and 20, but mm-hmm. I also very much understand, you know, by, uh, you know, the boomers ahead of me, you know, um, and I, I, how do you explain the, the, I mean, it's one thing to say that society adopts a utilitarian or, or situation ethics or, or is pursuing pleasure at all costs. And that's kind of a good in and of itself. But the, it seems like the church has largely adopted this way of ethically, of, of moral reasoning, maybe not explicitly, but it's just kind of absorbed it. Um, it just seems so clear when you read scripture, just like what you said, that that satisfying our desires is not the rhythm of New Testament ethical thinking. And yet it seems to be kind of the default for so many people, even inside the church. Is that, I mean, that might, might be an overstatement, but are you, uh, when, when you talk in class and as you talk to young people and stuff, I mean, d- does the light switch on pretty clearly or do you still get pushback for even some of the things you've been saying the last few Well, months? I think what happens with my, my seminary students, a lot of whom are youth pastors and college pastors, um, is I think they recognize that <clears throat> I'm right biblically. Mm-hmm but they don't have any idea how to put this into practice and still attract high school and college students to their ministry. Wow. Uh, okay. And so what we, what we've tried to suggest is that, um, you know, what, what Barna and others tell us is that, you know, the, the, the keep me entertained thing uh, among high school and college students yeah. is really old school. Yeah. Um, And what high school students want more than anything else is for somebody to answer their questions. Yeah. And and to to recognize that they, they're asking hard questions that we need, we need to be answering. Uh, And we're, and we're, and now I I think there, there are lots of churches that are exceptions to this. Sure. Um, But I think in, you know, in, in general, I, I think we are promoting a relatively superficial faith that, yeah, I think has is, is done really well at getting people out and serving and, you know, putting shoe leather on a big part of their faith, uh, but, has, but has not been so good at, at really answering tough, tough questions. One of the things, Preston, you'll be encouraged with this, I think, that, that, that I'm very encouraged about is uh, our, our program in, in philosophy and in apologetics here at Biola has started to put more and more of an emphasis on women in mm. apologetics. Yeah. Because we recognize that it's moms who spend, the, you know, in large part, not entirely, but moms spend a lot of the, these formative years with their kids. And it's moms that need the tools for apologetics to answer a lot of these tough questions that their kids are asking. Oh. Uh, and so we're seeing, we're seeing a, a new generation of women, you know, really take on the, 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 the commitment to doing really good, serious theology and apologetics in service of their kids. Oh. Um, 
And I think that I'd like to see our churches do a little more of that. I man, I couldn't agree more. When I'm, I mean, I have four kids, uh, 15, 13, 11, and nine. And I mean, they ask such deep questions and people say, Oh, well that's cause they grew up in your household and whatever. Like, I don't, it's not, dude, I rarely sit around and like read theology books to my kids or whatever. Like our environment is actually not naturally very intellectual. So I don't, I don't think it's just cause they grew up in my household and I'm an intellect. They just, they're kids. They're, they're teenagers and they're, have, have really hard questions about a lot of different things. And they don't want to know just what to believe. They want to know why I'm supposed to believe this. And yeah, I could not agree more. I think that, yeah, I think our youth groups and, and junior high groups and high school groups and so on and college groups, whatever, should be just bombarded with intellectually rigorous and clear and compelling conversations. And I just, yeah, I'm, I, I know it's a stereotype, but it's, it is for a reason that that's not, not the typical way in which youth groups are, are run. Um, I, I think I, I mean, with um, uh, people like Kara Powell and um, even like, you know, Barna and, and, and others that um, I, I'm seeing a change in that though. There is kind of a, have you seen this? I mean, it seems like yes. there is a real intentional and, and really helpful rethinking of, you know, youth ministry and just youth in general um, in the church these days, it seems like we're kind of at a crossroads. Would, would you, have you recognized that or? I've seen, yeah. Some of my students tell me that they, they're intentionally going smaller and deeper. Yeah, man. Uh, that's, that's great. If, if that which I think is terrific. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah. you know, the one, the thing that, that well, I think was, was off putting to my own kids when, cause they, you know, they grew up in a, in a high school group. Um, and what they saw is, and maybe this is unique to this particular place, but <clears throat> what they saw is that the people who were ser most serious about their faith were the ones who were rigid and legalistic. Mm -hmm. And the other, the, sort of the other half were the ones who were, you know, in church on Sunday, but out, you know, big, sort of big time in the party scene mm -hmm. the rest of the week. Uh, and so they viewed it as either either rigidly legalistic or hypocritical. And they just didn't see much that was in the middle hmm. uh, where people were really taking their faith seriously, uh, but were, were doing it in a non-judgmental way. Hmm. Now I realize that people, you know, high school students are in a relatively early stage of moral development where sometimes those rigid boundaries are just part of the program. Um, but that, it was kind of unfortunate that there, that that was their experience. Um, yeah. And I, you know, we, we tried our best to, you know, answer those questions when they, when they raised them, you know, your house is a lot like mine. You know, we spend a lot of time watching and playing sports together, not yeah. reading theology. <laughs> um, and, but a lot of those questions come out, you know, when we're having dinner after the, after the hoop game. Right. Uh, you know, so part of it, I think, just is just for, for parents. It's just like it's just it's just like being friends with your you know your non-believing neighbors. You know, you're just around. You're there. You're in their lives, um, and you just you respond when these things come up. It's yeah. in it's in the air. Yeah, so it's going yeah, to come totally. up. Uh, switching gears just slightly, um, I remember seeing from a distance some um, conversations on about sexuality that are they keep kind of coming up on Biola's campus. And I know Zeus has gone through some stuff and several other Christian schools. Uh, yeah. Going back to the sexuality conversation, how, how are things at Biola? Are you free to talk about it or is there other tensions and, and 
conflict and stuff, or is it is it not too bad? You know, I think we're we're in a we're in a little different place, I think, than some other places, uh, because we have a, a, a really clear theological distinctive on marriage and sexuality. That's part of what every faculty member signs on to. Okay. Uh, and that's part of the filter that we use in, in screening and recruiting faculty. Um, and our, okay. our president has, has, has said all along, they said, if, you know, if, if, if you're waiting for our, you know, for our view of marriage and sexuality to change, you know, it's not going to. Uh, and the, our, you know, our board of trustees has been very clear that our view of marriage and, and sexuality is not going to change on their watch, uh, sort of regardless of, you know, of what the, you know, what the external forces, you know, bring to us. We've been, you know, we're, you know, like a lot of Christian colleges in California, we're in the sites of the, in the sites yeah. of the legislature, um, that, uh, you know, lots of folks in the legislature think we ought to be out of business right because right. of our views on marriage um we're asking simply to be left alone to live out our deepest convictions as we see fit um and so far we're, we're still able to do that um you know i suspect i suspect you know we have we have students on campus who are wrestling with uh, their sexual orientation or their sexual attraction um we have a place where we try, we're trying to walk a really fine line, which we want to be supportive to those students who are wrestling with their sexual attraction, but who want to do it in the context of taking their faith seriously. Right. You know, so we want to provide that kind of support while at the same time, not affirming, you know, the LGBT agenda. Right. Um, so, you know, maintaining you know, fidelity to our convictions about marriage and sexuality, while at the same time being pastoral toward folks who are wrestling with their sexual attraction. Um, not, not always an easy thing to do. No, not at all. But yeah, the stuff I've read on your website is fantastic. I mean, you guys, I mean, and you have lots of people there who are, you know, you know like yourself and Sean and, and several others that have thought through this, you know, very in-depthly and very pastorally. So, uh, but yeah, your the, the wording and documents and stuff you guys have are fantastic. Um, was there, was there like kind of an underground LGBT group on campus a while back that was trying to, or was that just kind of over? I mean, I think every campus probably has some underground LGBT group these days, but is that, was that not that, uh, a big deal? Well, like I would, are? yeah, you know, I, I don't think that was, I don't think that was a major thing. Okay. Um, you know, I would I wouldn't surprise me if we had students who were who, who are waiting for our our theological distinctive on marriage and sexuality to change and yeah. hoping it would change. Um, but I think for you know for for a lot of students, I think they're you know they're taking their faith seriously. They want to grow in their faith. You know, I'm not sure some of this is all that big an issue to them. Yeah. Now for others it is because it's more personal. Sure. Um, yeah. But you know, I'm I'm actually a lot more interested in talking about things like the, you know, the biblical authority and the resurrection of Jesus, and <laughs> um, you know, our service to the poor, and you know, things things like that. Uh, the sexuality is not going to go away because it's culturally in the air, right? Um, and 
you know, do, do we have students who kind of wish our views would change? I'm sure we do. Yeah. Um, but I think if from the, from the very top of the, of the institution, you know, they're, they're on marriage and sexuality, they're not going to change. Yeah. Uh, we're getting up to, we're getting close to an hour here, but I, uh, one more quick question regarding bioethics. So uh, is euthanasia is becoming a hot topic recently. Is that, am I reading the times correctly? Is that, uh, is that coming up more and more now? Um, I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say more and more. There have been a couple of pretty visible folks uh, in the last two or three years <clears throat> that have opted for assisted suicide in the states where it's been legal. Okay. Uh, it's probably more of an issue in Europe. Okay. Uh, what's, and what's disturbing to me about that trend in, uh, in particularly in Europe and uh, Australia, we see it in Australia as well, um, is the connection that's made between uh, the demographic landslide that's taking place as us baby boomers uh, hit, you know, turn 65 and older, yeah. and how that's going to tax our medical system, and connecting that to legalizing assisted suicide. For economic uh, reasons? or for economic I mean, reasons, yeah. Really? Uh, yeah, because as a colleague of mine put it a while back, there's nothing cheaper than dead. <laughs> um, oh, my God. And, you know, people in Europe have actually said, you know, if you are – you know, if you have serious illness or if you have dementia, you know, you are wasting the resources of the national health system. Wow. Um, so that's, I think, what I'd encourage your listeners to, to have their antenna up for is the, the way it's being increasingly connected with, uh, you know, the fact that our healthcare system, if we try to give everybody everything they want and need at the end of their lives, we'll go bankrupt. Hmm. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. Now that, yeah. Now, to be clear, too, that's not to say that it's that it's immoral to say for a person, say on life support, to say stop to medicine. Mm -hmm. I think under the right conditions, that's theologically okay because death is a conquered enemy, mm. and and therefore because it's a conquered enemy, it need not always be resisted. That under the right circumstances, we can you know, we can stop treatments that are futile or more burdensome than beneficial uh, and essentially turn that person back, back to the Lord uh, yeah. for him to take him or her in whatever time frame the Lord sees fit. Uh, so would you say that euthanasia or yeah, assisted suicide is always morally wrong or are there any situation where you would say it might be I don't know, the lesser two evils or <laughs> the higher moral well, I, think, I think assisted suicide, would, I would say that's always morally wrong. Okay. Because there's almost always an, another option to, to do what people really want at the end of life, which is to control their pain and yeah. give them some sort of control over the end of life. Hmm. Um, and this is where the, you know, you'll find the hospice movement almost universally opposes assisted suicide. Uh, because they recognize that they, they have a good answer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my dad was in hospice care. Those hospice workers were the closest thing to guardian angels I've, I've seen this side of eternity. Wow. Uh, and what they did for my dad was fantastic. 
and he never thought about assisted suicide, not because he's a believer, but because he was so well cared for in hospice. Um, and hospice is still dramatically underutilized really? in our culture today. Well, Scott, we are rounding the corner at an hour, so I'm going to let you go. Again, the book is Moral Choices and Introduction to Ethics. Make sure if you're if you're sniffing around on Amazon right now, make sure you get the fourth edition. Uh, it is um, you, you might find the other ones cheaper, but the fourth edition is is a massive, uh, awesome resource that is. Uh, yeah, again, I can't emphasize enough. I, you know, I, I, I still feel bad that I called it a textbook. I mean, if I was going to teach a class on ethics, I would probably use it as a textbook. But it's, I was not not shocked because I'm familiar with your writings. But you, you will be shocked if you're not familiar with Scott's writing writings uh, at how cl- just clear and, and engaging um, uh, it is. So, uh, where can people find you if they're interested in your other your other works? I mean, obviously they can you know Google you or whatever. But do you have a, do you have a website or a faculty page at the at the university? Uh, at uh, look me up. I do have a, uh, a website, but it's at, at talbot.edu. Okay, cool. Um, Talbot.edu is the play, and then you'll search under faculty. Okay. Um, that's the best place. Scott, it's thanks been so fun. Much. Yeah, thanks for being on. Enjoyed it. I love it. <laughs> All right. We'll have to have you on uh, again sometime soon. You bet. Anytime. All right. Take care, Scott.